Welcome to the Insight Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Cassidy, an educational child and adolescent psychologist. I invited Sarah on the show to talk about anxiety in children. She co-authored the book, Tired of Anxiety, A Kid's Guide to Befriending Scary Thoughts and Living Your Life Anyway. And in this episode, I ask her to break down some of the key messages from the book. I talked to Sarah about the rise of anxiety in children and the causes, the nature versus nurture debate and why parents shouldn't feel guilty if their children experience stress and anxiety, how to hold conversations around anxiety with children, the role of bravery and modelling for parents and teachers, simple strategies for reducing anxiety, and more. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Sarah Cassidy, um, a quick read of your bio, and I can see just how much you have done in the field of educational, child, and adolescent psychology. And I always find myself saying this to so many guests that come on the podcast that you know there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, but I want to narrow it down. And today I want to narrow it down to talk to you about anxiety in children. Um, you've written a book on this topic. Um, called Tired of Anxiety, A Kid's Guide to Befriending Scary Thoughts and Living Your Life Anyway. So you're very much qualified to talk about the subject. So can we just dive in? You know, my my first question is, how anxious are our children? Well, frighteningly, Sam, they are very, very anxious. And this is quite worrisome, really. Uh, We don't think that anxiety affects children as much as it does. But in actual fact, current rates of anxiety in children are, in fact, extremely high. Um, Children and teenagers are affected quite badly by anxiety. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Ireland, 22% of adolescents, that's, say, 12 to 19 years, report severe anxiety levels. Um, This affects young adults as well. 26% of young adults between 18 and 25 years fall into severe and very severe categories for anxiety. In the US, 7.1% of children, now the age range for that, so it really depends on the statistics that you're looking at specifically and the age ranges. So between the age of three, would you believe, as young as three (sighs) years old, uh, up to the age of seven or 17, have been diagnosed with uh, an anxiety disorder by, um, and this comes from um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in 2021. Worldwide, anxiety has been called the ninth leading cause of disease and illness um, for 15 to 19 year olds. And then um, anxiety, would you believe, is the sixth leading problem um, for people between the ages of 10 and 14, the World Health Organization have told us that. So, like, it's a major problem, really. And it, it looks like it's, um, it's a s- research also else uh, estimates that the prevalence of clinically elevated child and adolescent anxiety is about 20% uh, at, at, of the global population. So, like, it's, it's bad. And it's getting worse. And this is across the world. So like it's in Ireland, in the US, Australia, wherever you are, it's bad and it's getting worse. Mm. And that's one of my other questions was, are children more anxious now than they were in the past? I think so. Now, this mm. is what, so like before the pandemic, we would have seen a lot of kids in clinic 
um, that had very high rates of anxiety. And then since the pandemic, the rates of anxiety have gotten worse. Sadly, the number of clinicians has not gotten higher, but right. the number of people presenting for support with anxiety um, has doubled or even tripled. Mm. Because you're you're kind of on the front line, so to speak, aren't you? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're very much witnessing this firsthand. So you're seeing that, you're seeing more kids, uh, more children coming to you or the parents bringing the children to you. Um, what's that like? Well, it's terrible. And, and I suppose I, I, I started out with, you know, lots and lots of stats because, you know, sometimes what I see here, you know, on the cold place, and, and I suppose you see this a lot in the classroom, teachers see this a lot and teachers are often very distressed. Parents are very distressed. And I'm trying to say, you know, sometimes the statutory bodies, this is a real problem. And I'm trying to give them, I'm trying to give them the stats. Say, you know, this is really, really, really a problem because I see this in an everyday way. Parents and teachers see this in an everyday way. And we're trying to bring all that together you know, this is a real problem, but how do we actually solve it? And it's very difficult when you've got parents and teachers struggling at the front face. And we see in the literature, it's a huge problem. But, you know, there's a real practical issue. How do you solve it? And yeah. uh, and, and the truth is, it's very, very difficult because nobody really knows how to solve it. No, no. <sighs> Which is a topic that I suppose we'll talk about, you know, some of the approaches yeah. that you would recommend. Before yeah. we do... Um, why are they but so it has gotten worse. anxious? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's gotten so I worse. I didn't answer You've your question. question. I, I think it's definitely gotten worse. And I mean, no. we see that all the time. And that was, you know, before all the data started coming in and mm. the numbers started getting in, uh, started coming in or started rolling in. That was my personal experience or my clinical yeah. experience or the anecdotal evidence was telling us, yes, it's getting worse. And we were struggling to keep up as clinicians. And I suppose in the classroom, teachers were struggling to keep up. And teachers were saying, you, you know, they were experiencing, um, you know, I think you, in the UK, you call it a, a emotionally based school, avo- school, um, school avoidance. Um, and in, the, in Ireland, we still often call it uh, school refusal. But, uh, you know, kids were just really, really struggling to actually get into school because of such yeah. high rates of anxiety. Yeah. So what are children anxious about? And, you know, I mean, is it, is it social media? Is it family? Is it a whole mix of everything? Is it too complicated so to say? Many things. There's so many yeah. things. There's so many things. I mean, it can, it can involve all sorts of really difficult, you know, kind of emotional and behavioral mm. responses. Sometimes it's things like phobia. Sometimes it's, it's fearful, you know, sort of general garden variety, fearfulness, separation anxiety. Sometimes it's self-consciousness. Sometimes it can be really like intense worrying. Um, you know, we might sometimes say it's irrational thinking. A lot of fear falls along a really typical developmental trajectory. So I suppose that's really, really important to remember too, that a lot of fear and anxiety is 100% normal and mm. it comes at an absolutely age appropriate time in a child's development so you'll see a load of uh, actually I had a great ki- uh, I had a great kid I have loads of great kids coming to me all of the kids coming to me are absolutely fantastic human beings and one kid said to me I've got halloween brain you know, and I, and I loved that that description of Halloween brain, but uh, and of course, a lot of kids at Halloween time have Halloween brain. Um, but the things that really, really were worrisome to him was that Halloween brain came to him all the time. You know, so he was seeing you know these really, really fearful things 
but they were so big and so deep and so dark yeah. all of the time. And so at Halloween, a lot of us love that stuff and we're just, you know, engrossed in it and it's exciting and, and, and it's incredible and it's mesmerizing. But for him, it also had the element of terror, you know, mm. so it's when that terror takes over that it's problematic. You know, but for some of us, that's exciting. And, you know, think about who loves a horror movie. Lots of us love horror movies, but we don't want them all the time. And we don't want them when we're trying to sleep at night. You know, we, we want them when we've got our popcorn and we're, you know, excited and delighted with our friends. We don't want them when we're trying to sleep. You know, so, so it's when it turns into a problem, when it turns into a problem. So, uh, you sorry to answer your question. I go around the houses a lot. You'll have to rein me in a little bit. Don't worry, <laughs> I, get, don't worry. I, I get excited, <laughs> Sam. You'll, you probably have to cut a lot of a lot of bits of this out when, when I run off on a tangent. Um, but so when kids get scared about a lot of things, and a lot of fears and anxieties do run along a developmental trajectory, and a lot of those fears and anxieties are normal. A lot of kids get scared about death and dying. That's normal. But it's when it gets to a stage where they can't stop worrying about it or when it gets over the top and when it, when it can't be sort of you know, dampened down or kind of assuaged or, or, or soothed by a parent or a teacher, talking a little bit about it, explaining it a little bit. And, and kind of cooling it down with a little bit of everyday explanation for actually, you know what, um, you know, this does happen. We do lose people. Like a lot of kids will be worried about death and dying around the age of seven uh, because that's around the time they have, you know, these kind of peaks in self-awareness where they realize actually people do die. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's, that's normal that they would start to become aware of those types of things at that point in time. And people start to die around, you know, that's, they become aware of that. and so when parents start to explain those things and they can take that on board and they can understand it in a cognitive way, but if they cannot let go of it, that's when it's problematic. It, it's, it's not that somebody has died. It's the fact that they cannot then let go of it. That's when it becomes a problem when, when they, when they begin to ruminate on it and they just simply cannot let it go. That's when it's, that's when it becomes a significant problem for them. Mm. I find so I find this really interesting. Yeah, that what what was just you know what is normal? What is you know what is yeah. a healthy amount of anxiety? A healthy amount of stress? Because yeah. we're all going to suffer in life, aren't we? We're all going to I have know. our worries, and that's part of growing mm -hmm. up. And but you don't want to sound like the kind of the the old man in the corner of the pub, like oh, it was you know we didn't have this back in my day. These mental health issues, yeah. you know, just get on yeah. with it. So where's yeah. that balance of? saying you know this is normal this is part of life and oh actually this has got to the point where yeah maybe maybe this um warrants some attention and, and needs some professional help or something and that's a very good point and i think a lot of a lot of parents come in at the point when they can't they can't manage it anymore and mm. and that that's a that's a really good point that you bring because and and I suppose that's why it's important really to do a little bit of measurement too, or to do a little bit of troubleshooting yourself with your child. And it's really right. important to have lots of conversations with your kids and a lot of you know and and with the other people in your life. You know, with you know, depending on who the other people in your life, you know, a partner or 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 a friend, and mm. kind of roll it around in your own house first and have discussions with your kids. And 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 this is a problem too because. We're all afraid to talk about these, you know, is this, is this potato too hot to touch? You know, like we can't talk, we don't talk enough about mental health and 
we're afraid to talk about these things. And what's the message that we're then giving a child, you know, that this is dark and dirty and you're not supposed to have this. And actually that's part of the problem. Whereas if we say, actually, everybody gets a little bit anxious or a little bit sad or a little bit worried uh, and that's okay. And, and it's, it's actually, this is a normal part of life that we get sad or we get anxious and let's talk about this. And, and I'm an adult and I get sad and I get anxious mm-hmm. and, and, and let me model that for you and, and let me talk about that with you. And then when you experience that, it's also going to be okay. So that's actually a really important thing to model for a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old, because when they see you getting through that, they'll know that they also will, will be able to weather that storm. Um, so like when a kid comes to clinic or when a parent comes to clinic with their child and, and they're throwing around these questions, is this normal that my child is feeling this anxious or this sad? And, and we, we actually have really good data that, you know, I started out giving you tons of stats and I, I'm sorry, I hope I didn't overwhelm you with all the stats, but, uh, I suppose what, what I was trying to say is, you know, that we've got data from all over the world that, that, you know, not just anxiety, but mental health distress appears to be on the rise for a lot of different people around the world, particularly for children. Um, but what I try to do is to ask a lot of different questions, um, that are age appropriate, but to look at you know, tell me about the experiences of your child. And what I want to do then is ask a lot of questions, then map them on because we do have good data across the Western world for what other children are experiencing. So we might administer loads of different checklists and then say, and now, you know, now that I have the data for your kid, I'll map that on to other kids and say, okay, the level of distress that your child appears to be experiencing does appear to be, you know, higher, lower, or bang smack in the middle. And then we can determine. So if your child were to actually attend clinic, we we could then say, yes, you know, they do have a higher level or a lower level or their bang smack in the middle. Uh, and then we could, then we could determine whether or not they needed, you know, a full blown, um, you know, clinical intervention. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we don't have a huge number of clinicians, you know, and, and, and you as a teacher, Sam, you know, you're seeing a lot of kids in the class attending clinic. Or, or attending therapy, you know, in my view, has been pathologized. We don't talk enough about, about mental health. Um, some people don't want to go to some people don't want to go to therapy. Um, and, and then, of course, there's a lot of people just you know kind of garden variety or um, sub threshold anxiety uh, or mental health distress. Uh, you know, so lots of those people. Maybe if they just talked about it more at home or maybe in the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, maybe they might never need to go. To a clinical setting, maybe they could just talk about it in the classroom, or, or talk about it with their families. And maybe if we were talking about it more uh, out in everyday settings, uh, maybe we would we would never have such high levels of distress in the population. Mm-hmm. That's what you mentioned about kind of asking the questions and trying to get a, a scale and trying to, mm-hmm. um, yeah, bring that awareness, I suppose, around it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that a parent could do just themselves? You know, are there good internet? questionnaires and things that, that they could do to try and get a, to, to, to gauge an understanding of how anxious their child might be and whether they need to take the next, next steps. Or is that not a good idea to kind of, does that border on self-diagnosis or something like that? And yeah. maybe it's to be avoided. I was just wondering what you thought. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I probably have two minds about that because mm. it probably depends on the parent too. Right, right. Um, and some of the parents that attend me are, yeah, it's a, that's a tricky one. You know, and, and I mean, my own GP would often say one of the first things, you know, because I'm like a lot of us, I'm one of those that, that doctor Googles everything. And <laughs> almost every time I go to the doctor, I've probably... I, I, I wait before I make my doctor's appointments and, and then I've diagnosed myself with, with various different things before I attend. Um, so I think it's probably important to have a level of self-awareness yourself and no, know the type of a person you are. And, and if you're like myself, you know, super hypervigilant and diagnosing yourself with 40 different things before you attend, um, then maybe you shouldn't um, yeah, yeah. take 50 scales before you know, if you know you're going to have 40 diagnoses before you attend somewhere, then maybe you shouldn't take 40 scales. But if, if you're kind of a middle of the roader and you can say to yourself, okay, I can, I can take this information on balance um, in, in a balanced way, then, then yes, I can, I can use some of these scales and, uh, and in a measured way. Um, it's it's a tricky one. You know, the, the internet is is a very useful place, but it also can be a dangerous place um, because I think we're all on information overload. And um yeah, it's it's it, it's a double-edged sword, I think, Sam. What what you're yeah. asking is a double-edged sword. Like when I was doing my training, and again, I'm sorry if I'm I'm going off track here. I forget sometimes in a podcast that we're recording and I just want to have a chat with you, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want. Absolutely yeah. fine. <laughs> I know when I was doing my training in psychometrics, I used to get really, really annoyed because, um, you know, I often say I'm a, I'm a card-carrying nerd. I'm an unapologetic nerd. And every time I'd hear about a new tool, I wanted to administer it to every single person I knew. Um, but, of course, the danger was that then I was administering really serious clinical tools to every single person I knew. And, you know, some of those very serious clinical tools then held very serious clinical diagnoses. And the danger is, of course, if you don't know how you're administering those tools, that has serious clinical data attached to it. And if you don't know how you're, you're administering, you don't know how to administer, you don't know what the implications of those, of that data is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, with some of our trainees here, um, you don't actually know how to ask the questions correctly. You don't know what the implications are. You don't know what support you might need to also allocate alongside of a clinical diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. That could be very, very serious and very, very dangerous. Yeah. And you need to handle that information sensitively. So in the same way that you know, you wouldn't want a parent picking up a clinical tool and saying, oh my God, my kid's got an anxiety disorder. You know, what must I do now? Where what it might mean is, you know, my kid is maybe, my child is at risk of, you know, having signs of anxiety. And maybe that might mean, you know, maybe that might mean that I may need to, might need to think about accessing some support or it might mean that I need to speak about anxiety differently in the home. You know, that mm. might, might, might not mean that your child has an anxiety disorder. You know, I, I would view disorder differently from, you know, like a full-blown clinical anxiety disorder is very different from, you know, having the 
everyday experience of anxiety. I mean, anxiety itself is extremely common. One mm. in four people have anxiety. Uh, um, one in three people have mental health difficulty. Um, and, and I think generally speaking, if, if we as a human population speak about mental health difficulties differently, mental health across us as a human species will be very, very different. And we will all have much better mental health as a human species. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I don't want to say we could uh, completely abandon the language of disorder, but I think we as a human species need to speak far more respectfully to each other as human species. And, and we could almost just abandon the language of disorder uh, and just speak to each other more, far more respectfully across the board. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be far more helpful. Yeah. Is it now a good time to ask about genetics and environment? We're kind of t talking about how um, we've seen that anxiety is on the rise and, yeah. um, you know, what, what, what is normal and, and, and yeah. that kind of thing and how we might be more aware of anxiety in ourselves and in the children around us, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about the role that genes play and the role that environment, yeah. which I suppose we've already touched upon, you know, what, mm -hmm. what is going on in our environment that might be affecting um, stress and worry in, in young people. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's often like what makes a cake, you know, is it, is it the flour or the batter or the milk or the eggs or um, so. And if we want to have a nature nurture debate, you know, I, I would I would almost say the debate's over. You know, I'd, I'd almost say it's both. And um, and you're always going to get people that are, are more on one side uh, than the other. And early in my career. I would have probably been a lot more on the nurture, you know, the nurture end of it than the nature end of it. And I'm, and I'm probably still a little more on the nurture end of it. Um, and you'll hear a lot of people, you know, you've probably heard of, you know, state versus trait anxiety and, you know, state anxiety um, is, is a, this more transitory emotional response where you've got these kind of, you know, really unpleasant feelings of tension and, uh, people have these various kind of apprehensive emotional thoughts where trait is this more kind of ingrained, you know, people, you hear people like personality psychologists will talk about it as a part of like your, your long-term view of the world. Um, but basically there's, there's more of a combination of factors where, um, you know, you'll have some people that have, let's say, parents that, um, and this can be either inherited or environmental. But we do know that children of parents that are anxious tend to be very anxious people. Okay, so like I, I'm a child of, um, you know, at, at least one anxious parent. So you know, I tend to be you know, more on the anxious. I tend to be an anxious perfectionist, um, you know, because my, I remember my mother telling me, uh, my mother probably will listen to this. So sorry, ma'am, I should apologize in advance. But I remember my mother telling me, uh, I, I worked at a place where I was coming home very, very late at night. And she used to always tell me to look underneath the car, you know, in case there was somebody underneath the car. Because uh, I, I was um, living and working downtown Chicago, kind of a bad neighborhood. And uh, so for years, I was looking underneath the car in case it was, you know, a bad guy underneath the car. And I also looked in the back seat of the car uh, in case um, somebody in the back, back seat of the car. I don't know what this bad guy was going to do to me, but, um, you know, 
and maybe I was going to run really fast when I saw the bad guy underneath my car in the backseat of my car. Um, so, but, but what that does in a physiological way is it, it, it increases your level of physiological arousal. Mm-hmm. And it also, um, so from both a state and a trait perspective, um, it increases your level of physiological arousal. So environmentally and physiologically, it increases your level of arousal, but it also reinforces um, your predisposition to be, to be aroused, but it, it reinforces those behaviors around your anxious predisposition. Yeah. So, um, so a- and that carries on in your behaviors, but also in your, um, in your genes. So like the way your body behaves in a physiological way, it reinforces that. And like your, your neurological pathways behave that way and they continue to behave that way because you've reinforced them. So it's um, cells that fire together, wire together. Mm. So you reinforce them interestingly and you increase the, their pathways and the way they, the way they wire together, which is really interesting. Um, so, so basically what I'm trying to say is that um, genetically, if you have a parent that's very anxious, you're likely to have a child, you know, your children will continue to be anxious, but also environmentally, like if I've seen my mother, every time she sees a mouse or a wasp or something, you know, jump up on a jump up on a chair, or like my children will have seen me swerve the car because a wasp flew in the window. And so my kids are more likely to be afraid of wasps or Mm. afraid of mice because they've seen me jump up on a chair and you know, there's a mouse in the room. Uh, and I remember my eldest son telling me that there was a mouse in his room. And I was like, oh my God, did you sleep? And he's like, mom, you know, you know, a mouse is about this big, you know, what was that mouse going to do to me? And I was like, I don't know, you know, run around your room all night. And he's like, well, what, what could it possibly have done to me? And I, I realized I was actually instilling a fear in my child who didn't think much of it. He was just reporting a fact to me. So I was actually giving him fear in that moment, a fear he didn't previously have. So, um, you know, so it is, it can be both genetic in that you will hand down to a child, your genetic predisposition, um, for fear because cells that wire together, fire together, wire together, but it is also environmental in that children will copy behaviors that they see. Uh, And so in my case, it's both. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer, but it, it, no, it's it's both. Yeah, it's both. absolutely fine. Yeah, and I, I do think part of growing up is is that looking around and thinking, oh, that that awareness. Oh, maybe I did get that from my mum or from my siblings or from that school friend that told me that thing that one time. And I just think it's really interesting. I suppose that's yeah. always the first step, isn't it? That kind of awareness yeah. and trying to unpick it. Mm. But I think I think we get it wrong a lot. Like I think that mm. growing up, I looked at certain people and you know you almost blame them for some of the ways that you've behaved and think oh I think I acted like that because that was what was modeled to me by this person and then five years later you think oh actually oh yeah this was going on at the same time actually maybe it was because of that and it's just so complicated isn't it and I just I feel for parents so much because how could you not be anxious (laughs) raising a child and how could you not be kind of um, passing on some of those worries because you just all that's important to you is keeping that child safe isn't it so it must be so hard as a a parent not to be 
blaming yourselves and I suppose to bring it back to anxiety in children do, do you see parents that are thinking oh my child is anxious and that's that's my fault I've I've done that to them and I've raised them in such a way that now they're this anxious child it, it's all my fault like how how would you approach that well for sure but a couple of things I would say to that is that you know hypervigilance is is necessary like if you think about child rearing it has been hired wired in higher it's been baked into parenting that you must protect your young mm -hmm. and that has kept the human species alive for millennia mm -hmm. so you know first thing i'd say to a parent is do not beat yourself up that's been baked into the human species that you must protect your young and so if you feel like you've done your child a disservice uh, you must be hypervigilant or the species will not survive. And so, so you didn't do your child a disservice, you know, by being hypervigilant and by watching your child. If you didn't protect your young, your young would die. Mm. And so there's a lot of things that really evolution has given us that we needed to have. Uh, and, and by the way, that goes for things like bullying and social exclusion, um, where we actually have a huge amount of evolutionary advantage and we shouldn't ignore that. You know, there, there are all these things that kind of arise in us. Like if I'm excluded from the group, a lot of anxiety comes from this too. Like mm -hmm. if I'm, if I, you know, social anxiety, if I get this sense that I'm being left out of the group and I all of a sudden get all, you know, have all these feelings of like shame and exclusion, um, you know, I, I, I get all this kind of like a, you know, you get some kind of hypervigilance from that too. Anxiety comes from there too. Um, parents feel that too. Like, oh my God, the neighbors are looking at me or like I'm being judged here and, you know, I need to quickly act on behalf of my child so that my child doesn't get left out or my child doesn't get judged or we're not getting judged by the neighbors. Uh, I need to quickly, quickly do something here or something different will happen for my child. Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, so, so parents have a huge sense of all this, you know, happening around them. And then that, of course, narrows the repertoire of the parent and they might act in a very particular way. Now, that doesn't always work long term. And that's one of the things that I would say to parents all the time is we need to think of what's the long game here, not the short, not the short, not short term. Like, what am I going to do right now? It's like, what am I going to do long term? We need to start thinking more in long term ways, not short term ways. But um, yes, yeah, so sorry, your, your question was about, um, am I harming my child? You know, mm. am I harming my child? Have I caused my child anxiety if I'm an anxious person? Um, that's a tricky one. Um, if you're an anxious person, the chances are you've probably have, you know, in the same way that you gave your, ch your child your lovely blue eyes and maybe some high blood pressure and maybe a predisposition. I always say I came from short round people. So <laughs> thanks, mom and dad. I probably was never going to be a, you know, six foot tall, long and lean uh, basketball player. But um, yeah, there's some things we do give our kids. And I think uh, I, I like this phrase. My, my friend, who's also a psychologist, Ashlyn Curtin, uses this beautiful phrase, um, honest and gentle. And I think it's good to be honest and gentle with ourselves about our ways of being in the world. And I think we do, even in kind of a biological way, have predispositions towards, you know, if we come from anxious people, we're probably, ha you know, it's good to be honest and gentle and say, look, my way of being in the world may be an anxious parent. And I have a tendency 
to be kind of in hypervigilance when I'm around my kids. And I notice myself when I'm out in the world. My kids told me recently that when I'm in airports that I'm a psychopath. So I said, thanks very much, guys. And I notice you might be correct. <laughs> and I notice that that's because I care a lot about you, my children, as human beings. And I notice that airports are really big, busy places. And I find it hard to be on time. And I don't want to miss this flight. <laughs> we want to get to this place. And you, my lovely human being children, are chaotic <laughs> and often running in different directions from the places that we need to be. So that <laughs> brings about in me, as another chaotic human being, um, you know, a, a tendency to want to hold on to you, other human beings. So, mm -hmm. like, let's all try and get on, uh, on the same page. So like notice the way the other human beings around in you bring about a certain way of being in you, in you and, and try to be honest and gentle about the way your human beings bring about uh, certain things in you and try to be honest and gentle about that and not beat yourself up because the data on, on shaming yourself, you know, tells us, you know, if you, if you think about your teacher, okay, so what, what does this data tell us? The data on, we don't want to shut down you as a human being. So if we shame you as a parent, we shame you as a parent and saying, God, you're a terrible parent. Look what you did to your kid. You know, you, you shut down your kid. You made them an anxious human being. What does that do to your repertoire as a parent? That shuts you down. Where we want to open you up as a parent. Say, look at you. You're amazing. You've kept your human being alive. Look at all the things you're doing well. So we want to open you up. And say, look at all the things you're doing well. Not not shutting you down and saying, look at all the terrible things you're doing. You might have brought about some anxiety in your child, and that's okay. You know, that's you know, anxiety is a normal adaptive human response. Yeah, I think that's really useful. I really appreciate that, and I think there's lots of people that would, um, yes, appreciate what you've said there, and especially that honest and gentle piece is is very yeah. useful. Yeah. So. Maybe we can move into the the more practical aspects then um, around conversations with children, um, tools, strategies that we can use. Um, the advice that you offer is is based around ACT, isn't it? Uh, I believe mm -hmm. acceptance, right. acceptance and commitment therapy. And so, Absolutely. acceptance, if if I'm right, is that is that first step um, when mm -hmm. approaching these these different um, issues? If that's the right word, I'm not sure if it is. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Fine, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so how, how, how might we go about that? You know, how, how do we talk to children, get them to understand and accept anxiety or stress or, you know, you mentioned earlier worries about death. How, how, how do we get children to accept those feelings, have those conversations? So that's the thing. Um, yeah, the word acceptance is, is a great one. Um, and I think a lot of the ways we speak to kids are kind of arrogant, actually. Mm. And I think that we assume because children are small or, you know, because they're young, uh, that, and, and sometimes I'd have kids coming in, uh, like as young as four years old. And we imagine that, you know, you're, you're young. No, what could possibly be going wrong for you? And I find myself falling into this trap a lot myself. You know, my, my youngest is now 10, but you know, we're, we're older and we're busy. We've got our jobs and whatever, but like, I, I mean, I, I had a little guy come into me one time, very, uh, you know, little guy and told me that he was all wrapped up in shame 
I thought, oh my God, you, you know, poor little guy. Like, how could a kid that young be all wrapped up in shame? Mm-hmm. And like little kids have really hard lives sometimes. And we forget that just because you're young, you know, that that doesn't mean that you don't have really hard stuff going on in your life. And I think we forget, like as we move along our own developmental trajectories, we forget that kids have hard lives too, just because we're wrapped up in our own stuff. So like to me, acceptance is just about saying that, um, just about acknowledging whatever is happening for you in your life, um, you know, it's not about changing it. It's not about, and by the way, acceptance is a wildly courageous act. You know, it's, 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 it's not saying you have to like it. It's not saying you have to tolerate it. It's not saying you have to have this thing forever. It's just acknowledging that it's here. You know, it's just opening up your eyes and saying that it's here. It's not saying you have to like it. And I think that's the the mistake people make around the understanding of acceptance. It's it's people think acceptance means you have to put up with this forever. And you don't, you know, and you don't have to like it. It's more like an opening up your eyes to it and acknowledging that it's here. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the next piece of that, you know, is um is the is the commitment, you know, commitment to to what your values are and what's important to you in your life. And the other mistake I think people make when when working with with young people is thinking that just because they're younger that they don't have really important things to them. Or I, I think we're actually quite insulting to kids. I hope I, I know you're a teacher and you you work with children, so um, I think we think because you know children are are smaller. My friend Nanny Presti um, said something one time. Like he, he's Ita- Italian is his first language. I forget how he phrased it one time. It's like, I work with um, children, is not the long ones or something. I forget how he phrased it, but it was so right. funny. He's like, you know, like that, that they're, they're the short, they're the little ones or the short ones. But anyway, I can't, I'm not doing it justice now because I forget exactly what he said. But um, it was especially funny when, it, when English wasn't his, his first language. It was like, not the long ones, the skinny ones, not the long ones. Anyway, I'll, I'll ask him later and I'll, I'll report back to you when I, when I remember the joke properly. Um, but it's like, we think that just because they don't have the same length or breadth or depth, um, or the same longevity as us, mm. that somehow their experience can't be as rich or nuanced as us, or somehow it's not as important as ours. And to me, that's just not true. Like, you know, if, if I can have an eight-year-old tell me that he's all wrapped up in shame, then I don't care if eight is the length of his experience. Like if his experience has been wrapped in shame, I mean, that's pretty deep to me, Hmm. you know, and, and and he knows his experience. If he can give me those words, like that is a deep experience. If he knows that it's already wrapped in shame. Uh, And, and to me, that's an experience that warrants some unraveling or warrants some attention. And, and I mean, maybe that doesn't need to be with a clinician, um, but, but that warrants some attention and it warrants some respect. And no matter your age or the length of your time on this earth, um, I want for, and I hope that, that we all want 
as a human species for each of the members, you know, that walk the earth to garner the respect that they deserve. Mm. I think we can all be a little guilty of it, can't we? Talking down to children and um, the kind of the the baby talk and the, the words that we use yeah. in the sentences where actually, you know, we can, we can yeah. talk to them like the little adults that actually have a lot of wisdom, don't they, inside of them and we can learn a lot from them. It makes me think of, I read the The Courage to be Disliked. Have you read that? based on mm-hmm. Alfred Adler's psychology. Um, so that's a conversation between a, you know, a philosopher and a young student. And he's, he's talking about how he, can, how he can grow, how he can be happy. And, and one of the things that he explained that Adler's kind of approaches was um, horizontal relationships, not vertical relationships. So seeing everyone as your, as your equal and not, not looking down to children and kind of, um, yeah, not having that kind of hierarchical hierarchical if I'm saying that correctly um, relationship and you know you're on a level with them and and, and you're working together with them and you've got a bit more like you said a bit more respect and understanding of the the knowledge and the wisdom that they've got and the fact that they have got that self-awareness and we just might be need to unpick it rather than saying well I'm the adult I know what I'm talking about you need to do this and you need to do this come on (laughs) because actually what is that assumption and how how fair is that assumption? Like, just because I'm older and just because I'm busy doesn't mean that I get to be in charge. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen that kids movie, Matilda, but there is some of the most profound wisdom that I have ever heard or seen. Uh, and even in, there's a, like a handful of lines in that movie that I've often repeated to my trainee teachers. Um you know, where it says like, I am big and you are small. I am Mm. right and you are wrong. And, you know, I think we need to be really careful, deeply careful about that power imbalance, you know, from adult to child and teacher to student and, you know, clinician to trainee. And like when I'm thinking about this, you know, I, I direct two clinics and I think about this all the time, like, you know, how do you get to be in charge? And like when I'm sitting with a a child in the clinic or like, you know, my parent-child relationships and, you know, my my kids ask me questions and I think about them all the time and, and I constantly have to remind myself, like, why am I in charge here? And is that fair? And if you have a question, like what gives you legitimacy and what's, what gives me legitimacy and is it fair? And if it's not fair, why not? And and like, how do we get to stand on this ground? And you know, what what gives that the foundation? And 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 be careful and be conscious and be fair, uh, and and then allow that to continue. But it's mm. it's it's profoundly important. Yeah, careful of your inner Miss Trunchbull. Is that what you're saying? Yes, be <laughs> very <it>. careful <laughs> of you. Yeah, and and again, I think I you know. That. Yeah, be very careful because I think it's there. And I mean, yeah. I mean, I get it, you know, like I, I like being in charge. <laughs> I know I do. I know I do, you know. Yeah. My inner mama bear, she's there. <laughs> she she likes to be in charge. Yeah. Yeah. So 
conversations with children, you know, is it something that um, parents could be having around the dinner table? Is it, is it like these little opportunities that you might uh, take to check in? If we're talking about that acceptance piece and getting a bit more of an understanding, uh, understanding before you might offer strategies or tools. Um, yeah. Do, do you ask like a, a quick question every day? Is it something that teachers should be doing, like little check-ins? Is that something that you would recommend as part of that acceptance conversation piece. Do you see what I mean? Great idea. Yeah. Brilliant idea, actually. Um, conversations around the dinner table, conversations in the classroom. Actually, those are beautiful ideas. And I think those are beautiful strategies that could be built into any classroom or into any home. Um, and that's one of the things we're trying to do actually in the Tired of Anxiety series would mm. be um, kind of fostering curiosity um, building creativity, building courage, um, one step at a time and modeling it. So yes, definitely. That's a, actually a beautiful idea. Oh, great. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's uh, because so easily we can just go into the, you know, what work did you do today? Or, you know, do, yeah. how, how was PE or after the football tournament or something? Or did you win? Like, did you try yeah. your best? And we can, yeah, we can have those conversations around, oh, it doesn't matter if you won or lost. It's about their taking part. But I'm just trying to get across the fact that I suppose those, you know, alongside those conversations, those usual questions that we might ask children at the dinner table or after the sports tournament is the, how are you feeling today? And are you worried about anything? Um, but like you said, that might be a good idea, yeah? Actually, the language that we use is critical. Mm. And one of the things that we're doing, uh, and I don't know if you know much about this, Samuel, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about relational frame theory, but that's sort of like baked into ACT. And it's a functional analytic theory of language and cognition. There, there's a mouthful for you, and it's, well, it's I, probably I know a, nothing about it. So please ooh, explain away. It's, 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 it's probably it's probably it's a probably a whole other. I did my PhD on relational frame theory and human cognition, and um, I'll come back to you another day on okay. um, on Sounds smart. Good. Yeah, that's probably maybe a whole whole other podcast. And yeah. we designed um, a program to raise human intelligence. That was my my PhD. So um, I'll come back to you another day for a, for a whole other podcast on that. It's a, it's a very, very cool program that we, we designed. Um, but the language that we use mm. is incredibly important. And we could be saying all the time, um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about, let's say the perfect example that you just gave, you know, so we could, let's say, you know, read a book. I know your, your listeners can't see here, but like, you know, the, the Tired of Anxiety book. But, you know, you could, let's say, read a chapter of the book or, you know, you could have a lesson in school. In Ireland, we call it SPHE, but, you know, whatever, whatever your curriculum is at school. Uh, but you can build a lesson on curiosity into literature. You can build it into science. You can build mm -hmm. it in, but like curiosity is really important for mental health. So mm -hmm. you don't have to be doing a lesson on mental health to be talking about curiosity and creativity. And it turns out those are incredibly important for your mental health. So that's as important, you know, if you understand what I'm saying, it's like, that's as important for mental health and, and fostering of strong um, you know, kind of protective factors for, for resilience and building resilience 
and that's a protective factor against uh, against um, you know anxiety mm. and depression. As you know that that might protect you against you know later on you know where you might not need to attend a clinician if you have um, uh, you know strong creative pursuits. Do you know what I'm saying? So like if yeah. you're using that language in your everyday life and you have a strong understanding of um, you know, creativity and, um, you know, being a flexible human being and, and you're, you're have like flexibility of your thinking, then you're a much more flexible problem solver. And then you can, um, you're much more likely to then later on not need, you know, be able to apply creative problem solving to your mental health difficulties too. Mm. Yeah. So and relational like frame theory su supports that. But that's, right, a whole, that's right. a whole other podcast. Well, you'll have to come back on the show and talk more <laughs> about that. That's yeah. absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah it feels yeah. like creativity is one of those kind of foundations that uh, alongside sleep and exercise yeah. and yeah. mindfulness and things. But it's something that I, I suppose is, is neglected, isn't it? You know, when does anyone mm -hmm. have time for creativity, really? Yeah. And I think another aspect is that some people maybe don't think that they've got creativity in them that they're not a creative no. person I remember growing up I was a very sporty person I did athletics I did decathlon at university and I didn't really have a creative outlet because I didn't think that that was my thing I didn't think I was good at art didn't think I was good at no. music and then it got to 16 and me and my best friend we we taught ourselves how to play guitar and then we formed amazing a band, and then we wrote music together and so to be wow. someone that is that thought of themselves as not creative to then going on to you know, supporting a, a local, supporting and, and going on tours around around the UK with our band, so with songs cool. that we've written ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. I just think yeah. people, you know, don't underestimate the creativity that you've got inside you because yeah. we all have that, don't we? And don't think, oh, I'm not a musician, I'm not a painter, yeah. um, I'm not a poet. We we have got those inside ourselves. We just need to um, just find what we like and then throw ourselves into it, don't we? So. I mean, now mm. I get to be creative with this podcast, which is good, you know, yeah. creating the videos and, and, and things like that and the writing of the interview questions. There's, there's an element of creativity yeah. there. Um, but I suppose it's hard when people haven't got the time, but I just would like to think that if people can find that little 10 minutes for creativity, it's, it's so powerful, isn't yeah. it? Like, you, like you've explained. So it's really good for your mental health. Mm. And so really good for flexible thinking. Yeah. And th so the flexible thinking, it's like it all kind of layers onto itself and it's really protective for your mental health. Yeah. So yeah. come on, listeners, make a bit of time for creativity, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> um, exactly. So what about strategies and tools that maybe a parent could use or perhaps a, a teacher like myself if they've got, um, if, if there's something simple and quick, you know, not to underplay it, but if there's something that can be introduced in a classroom, for example, if you're noticing some signs of anxiety in a child, um, or if you're just wanting to, um, you know, introduce approaches that then can can stay throughout life and, and keep you kind of on top of things. Because I, I know that from my experience, that's what helps me, you know, I I meditate in the morning and I, and I exercise as right. much as I can, you know, do all those things that, um, you think, 
oh, I'm feeling really good now so I can stop those things. I don't need to do them anymore. But of course, then, yeah. you know, uh, some problems can rear their ugly head again, can't they? So, um, yeah. yeah, any any ideas for strategies that can be introduced or things that can become embedded and become a daily, uh, one of those, you know, those nice rituals that we can introduce to a, a home or to a classroom? Um, tell me anything you'd, you'd like around that. So... I think probably the best thing, and both parents and teachers can do this, is modeling bravery. Right. But I, it shouldn't be, and, and be careful of the shoulds, you know, be careful of the, the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and the really rigid rules, because us anxious people, and I include myself among those. And, and by the way, when I say us anxious people, I never knew I was an anxious person. Mm. Like, I always thought I was a really brave person because I had a lot of these I should do this. And now I would call myself an anxious perfectionist. And I never avoided anything. I did everything because I had all these rules about having to do everything perfect. So I did absolutely everything and therefore did not recognize myself as an anxious person. So, and, and you mentioned the word rituals and I work with a lot of people that have OCD. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back around to the, right. the word ritual. Okay. And, and rigid rule following can be a problem, you know? So, um, so it's good to have rituals, but it's good to have routines, but not necessarily a ritual. Okay. So, but that's, that's, that's if you, if you're kind of, if your anxiety is of the OCD variety, then so what I think about is like modeling bravery. And if you're a parent or if you're a teacher, I would like for people to, you know, kind of open up the space where it's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay to say, you know, look at me, I'm an adult and, and I get anxious all the time. Um, you know, we, we ran these art clubs and, you know, we did this, um, we did this kind of initiative in our, our local public library. And one of the things that all of us that ran this initiative did was we talked about our own anxiety. So, you know, we had, um, a couple of the people that ran the club with us, um, Sarah and JJ were some of our assistant psychologists here, but one of the things when we ran and, and, you know, you mentioned your band and that's very, very cool. And I'm not an artist at all, but we had uh, an artist that helped us um, doing the art club and she told us how to do the art. And I actually did some of the art. I'm horribly uncreative. <laughs> and so I did all the art with our, our artsy teens. Um, but we modeled it, you know, and, and mine was like stick figures and like ridiculously poor art. And we had all these like amazingly, uh, you know, creative um, teens doing the artwork. But what we were doing in, in our art club is we were talking about our anxiety. And I think it's really important for um, adults to say to kids, look at me, like, I also have anxiety and I can do a thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember in one of our groups, um, not that I have all the answers, I absolutely don't. Um, but like, I remember saying to one of our art club groups, you know, I was talking about how I'd been at, it was like a parent association meeting. And I all of a sudden became aware that even though, you know, I, I've been um, working as a psychologist for 20 years and I was talking to a, a, a parent association meeting about something 
I can't even remember what I was talking about. But all of a sudden became aware that my voice was shaking and my face was all red. And I was like, God, that's kind of weird because I'm talking about something that I actually know an awful lot about. Mm-hmm. Why am I suddenly so anxious about this? But I just suddenly became aware that everybody was looking at me and listening to what I was saying. And I suddenly was aware that for some reason I was really anxious. And so I was telling this group of teens about the fact that I had suddenly became aware that I was really conscious of everybody looking at me in the room and that I had become really, really anxious. And the teens were saying, actually, it was really helpful to know that a 48-year-old woman who was fairly successful in her career was suddenly really anxious when she became aware of you know, the, the social situation that was around her in that moment. So you know, in answer to your question, um, I think it's really important to model that this happens to me too. Sometimes I don't know why. And yet, put yourself in situations that are important to you and let your values be your guide. So model courage and bravery in everyday ways. You know, so, so what are some strategies? Model courage and bravery. Talk about the fact that you get anxious sometimes too and do things that are important to you. You know, so, so those to me would be the, the key strategies. Model courage and bravery. We want to shape courage and bravery. You're not going to have all the answers all the time. You just aren't. They don't exist, I don't think. Um, I, I don't believe that there are cookie-cutter answers to the universe. I wish there were. You know, I, I love these you know, Facebook memes, and you know, I share them all the time, the, the great, you know, really well-thought-out answers, and somebody snapshotted them and put a really beautiful picture beside them. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I, I find that like usually somebody came to that answer after probably a long winded sideways street down alleyways and cobblestones. And, (laughs) um, I, I don't think the truth come came that easily. You know, I, I think the best way to show your students or your children how to get around anxiety is like, you've got to go through it. You know, you can't get under it. You can't get over it. Sometimes you've got to go through it. You know, it's like that, that kids, um, you know, you're going on a bear hunt. Um, it's, um, I think you've got to go through it. And I, and I think for parents model it, um, let's not hide it anymore. You know, it's out there in the world. It's okay. Anxiety has evolutionary advantage and it's meant to be here. Your body is giving you data all the time. There's something important that's happening. Listen to your body. What's it saying? And take a look. You know, look around you. Are you in deep, dark, grave danger right now? Oh, no, it's just a maths test. Okay. You know, your heart's beating fast. Okay. I get it. You know, and that, why is that? Okay. Maybe because school is important to you. Mm-hmm. All right. Or maybe it's because there's a lot of people in the room and you feel nervous. Okay. What can you do right now? Well, there's a, a few things, you know, like we know that when our body gives us data like that, our, our amygdala is, is on high alert. Our amygdala is on high alert because it's trying to keep you safe. But when that happens, your prefrontal cortex, that switches off. Your prefrontal cortex, that's your thinking and reasoning brain. You need your prefrontal cortex if you're trying to take a maths test or you're trying to problem solve something really difficult. So you want to switch off your prefrontal cortex. That's, that's like your, um, your fight, flight, or freeze brain. Okay. But, and that, that's your, your, your evolution trying to keep you safe. But if you're taking a maths test, you're probably not in any deep, dark, grave danger. You're not running from a bear. So mm-hmm. let's, let's turn off the, 
the prefrontal cortex, let's turn off your amygdala, turn back on your prefrontal cortex. And you can do that with, you know, we can, in the book, we'd go through kind of like simple grounding techniques and, um, but you can do that. Like I would teach a kid in a, in a classroom, let's say, or I would, might teach parents this like grounding really simply put your feet on the floor literally ground yourself, push your feet on. Nobody has to know that you're doing that. Push your Mm -hmm. feet down really hard on the ground for a few minutes or do some really simple breathing technique in through your nose for four seconds. I'd actually count it out with a kid and I'd actually practice in through your nose for four seconds. Out through your mouth for six times a cycle of three that turns on your, um, turns off your amygdala turns back on your prefrontal cortex. Do that a few times, go back to your maths test. So I would practice that with parents, with teachers. So you breathe in through your nose for four seconds, out through your mouth for six, times a cycle of three. That comes from compassion-focused therapy, and it's called soothing rhythm breathing. And I would do that a few times, and that is a really good strategy. And I would also, you know, use information from my five senses and that will bring you back to this present moment. You know, so those are a couple of really good, just quick and easy techniques for bringing a person back to this present moment. So I've practiced that, but I would also really just talk to your kid, you know, uh, about it's okay. Like anxiety is a normal human response. Your body's giving you data. It's trying to give you safe. It's, it's trying to keep you safe, but it's okay. Like you're, you're not actually in danger. Your body might think you are, but it's okay. You know, say thanks. Thanks mind. Thanks body. You know, I'm, I'm here with you. Uh, and I know it. And, and, you know, I, I, I thank you for looking out for me, but you got this. We've got this. We're in this together. And I know the world, um, you know, feels like a dangerous place sometimes. We've got this. We're in this together. We're going to do this. That's so helpful. That was a, was a mad ramble. Not at all. Not at all. Really, really helpful. And it was interesting the way you answered the question to me, because I suppose when I, ans- when I asked the question, I thought you would just answer with those strategies that you just mentioned towards the end, the grounding. Yeah the breathing, the five senses. I thought that's what it was going to be about, but I thought it was interesting the way you, you opened with the, the bravery piece and, and the, and the yeah. modeling. And that's, yeah, that I, I, I just think that's really interesting to me. It makes me think about the fact that I suppose as a teacher, um, you might worry about being too open and too honest with your students. Mm. You know, we've got to stand at the front of the class, a bit like we were saying before, and, you know, looking quite stoic, we're here to do a job. Um, it's all about the learning. Let's just get on with it. And I, I suppose you don't want to get too personal. And I guess there's some truth in that, isn't there? You, you mm-hmm. definitely don't want to get too personal with students at your place of work. But at the same time, I, I, I know from experience that there's incredible value in sharing how you're feeling and making very, very clear to the children that you're working with that you are a human being as well. And, and I've done this where, you know, I've woken up and for some reason there's a bit of a dark cloud that morning and you're not feeling great and maybe you're feeling a bit unwell and then of course you haven't slept well and so 
you know, professionally and, and, and with, with some boundaries, I've said to the children, you know, I'm not feeling that great today. I didn't sleep very well. I'm feeling a bit, um, I'm feeling a bit poorly. So you might have to look after me a bit today. <laughs> you might have to be a bit mm-hmm. gentle with me. Yeah. And, and just like I would do with you kids, like, let's look out for each other here. And children respond to that. And, and like mm-hmm. you said, they, they understand it and they have that compassion. They have that empathy. Like, oh, okay, right. We need to be a bit more gentle with Mr. Hart today. And, and, and they do it. So there's definitely that value. And, and I'm really, yeah, I really appreciate you talking about that bravery and that modeling. And mm-hmm. as I mentioned, I find it interesting that you opened with it. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to model that and mm-hmm. to show them that it's okay to be a human being. Mm. And I think we need to model a lot more of it. Right, right. It's a very important piece of psychology to model right. humanness. Okay, okay. Oh, man, really interesting. And this this does feel like a good place to kind of close and wrap up. Mm-hmm. We've just gone over an hour. Um, okay. But as you said, if if, if you're up for it, then um, I'll be more than happy to have you back on the show to, cool. to talk more about yeah. your work. That would be brilliant. Um, yeah, thank cool. you so much, Sarah. I do finish with a couple of kind of three quick fire questions. If you've got time, okay. can I shoot yeah, those at sure. you? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, you can answer these, you know, as briefly as you like. Um, I ask them every, uh, every guest. I ask these three questions. The first one is: What's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were younger? Okay. Um, now I know I should have prepped this better, but I didn't. So quick fire. I wish I knew my parents were very, very good at teaching me amazing things like task persistence. And I mentioned before that I would probably class myself as an anxious perfectionist. I wish I knew when to stop. I Mm. wish I knew things like when it was okay to let go when it was okay to say I've had enough, when it was okay to say um, I'm I'm handing back the baton, um, I'm going to let go of this. I wish it was okay um, to say this is not okay with me. Um, I wish I knew better, I think, where my boundaries were. And I think I didn't know that. I think it took me a long time to know that. I think I was probably, I was probably in my forties where I learned, I'm probably still learning where my boundaries are and when it's okay to say no. And I think maybe that's been, that's been a lifelong lesson of learning where the boundaries are. And I think people sometimes need to look inside themselves rather than externally to find boundaries. What's one habit I could introduce to my life that could help me feel great or better? Perhaps something you've introduced to your life that's made a difference to you, a good habit. I think writing in free time into your diary as though it is an appointment. Mm. So I have learned the hard way to schedule downtime. Good one. I like that. Mm. And if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? I think it would have to be Tony Biglin's The Nurture Effect. Okay. Anthony Biglin's The Nurture Effect. It's a very good one for teachers, actually. 
Right. I haven't heard of that one. I will check oh, it out. It's so good. Yeah. I've given it to every teacher that has ever taught my children. Oh, wow. And in fact, every teacher at the entire school. So okay. excellent one. Highly yeah. recommended. Right. I'll check mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. Um, okay. People that want to connect with you, find out more about your work, of course, get their hands on um, your book as well. You've actually got another book, um, on a similar theme, haven't you, coming out? Yes. Please, please tell the audience more about those, how they can get in touch with you, how they can get a copy of the books. Yes. So, well, Tired of Anxiety, you know, the first one, um, A Kid's Guide to Befriending Scary Thoughts and Living Your Life Anyway. Uh, That's by myself and my co-author, Dr. Lisa Coyne. And we also just have Tired of Teen Anxiety, um, Mm. Living Your, that's about living your best teen life. And that is by Lisa Coyne and myself. So that's coming out um, actually next month, the next couple of weeks. Um, so I'll, I'll send you on the, the cover for that so you can, you can put them up alongside. Um, so you can reach me at, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put up our website. Yeah. Um, I put up our websites, um, uh, Smithsfield Clinic, uh, smithsfieldclinic. I think I'm smithsfieldclinic.ie. Actually don't even know. <laughs> I better, I better put that up. Um, but you know, it's, it's Sarah Cassidy and we're also the New England New England Center for OCD and Anxiety. We'll get both myself and Lisa Coyne, who's my co-author on the book. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll put the links, the correct links, however it does. The correct, yeah, we'll better make sure <laughs> yeah, we've got the, the correct links. I'm sorry, yeah. And our, our publisher is Pavilion, uh, Pavilion. Publishing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's all of them, yeah. And, and we're, we're also available in Ireland as well. So Excellent. we'll put the, put the links up for yeah. sure. For sure, for sure. Sorry, I don't and know them offhand. I should know all the links and all all the all the places. We're we're also available at outside the box learning in Ireland too. They've been very good to us too. Great. So make great, sure we're available great. there. Lots of links then. Lots of links. Lots and lots of links. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and also um, raiseyouriq.com. I mentioned um, smart training. Um, okay. So I'll make sure to come back and talk about that too. Another day for relational frame theory. That would be excellent. I, I, I would really really like that. Um, mm-hmm. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, and yeah, thank you for I'll, having I'll me. Be in touch. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to staying in touch and okay. uh, discussing more about all these topics that both of us find so fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Thank you for having me, Sam. Okay, thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Sarah insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.